0: Hello and welcome to Willosophy with Will Anderson. I'm Will Anderson from the title of the podcast and today's guest needs a little introduction. Tom Gleason, Gold Logie winner, uh, award-winning stand-up comedian who is currently doing a little bit of stand-up comedy. Uh, There may be tickets left for the 28th in Newcastle and then there are three dates at the Sydney Opera House. So we show Lighten Up which he did mention he will be doing again next year as well in a couple of places. I highly recommend if you have not seen Lighten Up, go and see Lighten Up. I saw it at the Adelaide Fringe back when I could go and see live comedy, back when I was doing my last gigs. And we talk a little bit about that in this episode. But it is a brilliant show and I highly recommend it. And speaking of brilliant shows... Hard Quiz, of course, is Tom's show. It's 8 o'clock on a Wednesday night on the ABC and you can stick around at 8.30 and watch Gruen. Afterwards, there are, what, three or four episodes left of Gruen for the year and there's a couple episodes of Hard Quiz left for the year as well. So make sure you check those out. And if you want to see old episodes, you can watch those on ABC iview for free. Of course, um. what else? Uh, there is a hard quiz board game. There is a hard quiz book. You can buy those. But uh, mostly, go out and support live stand-up comedy, which is reappearing around the country in various places. And there is no better place to see live stand-up comedy than to go and see Tom Gleason doing his show Lighten Up. Uh, that's the plug for Tom. the plug the plug for me and the podcast is of course patreon patreon.com/ philosophy. If you like this podcast and you would like to see it come out twice per week, which would be an early in the week episode like this. if it's uh, if you are a patreon subscriber, you can actually be listening to this episode on Sunday. ad free. goes up for everybody else on a Monday. And then what I'd ideally like to do is a catch up episode with people on a Thursday for Patreon subscribers and Friday for everybody else. Uh, but I need to get above $5,000 per month to be able to afford to do that regularly. Uh, We've been hovering, we've been teasing, we've been getting very much close to that $5,000 mark, so hopefully uh, we will get over it and we'll start to be able to do two episodes per week. Although, to be honest, I've got three more weeks of the television left and it's really busy when I'm doing that, so if it doesn't happen in the next three weeks, I'm fine with that. But after that, I'm going to have plenty of spare time because I'm going to be unemployed again, so it would be great for us to be able to do two episodes per week. And uh, so we'd love if you could contribute to the Patreon page, patreon.com philosophy. That money, of course, goes to pay Podcast Mike, who puts together these episodes, and James Fosdyke, who does all the original art for the episodes. And man, his Tom Gleason uh, for this one is an absolute cracker, even by James's standards. So Anyway, here he is. I hope you enjoyed this episode with the hilariously funny and good friend of mine, Tom Gleason. Hello, and welcome to Philosophy with Will Anderson. I'm Will Anderson from the title of the podcast, and. Uh, This is how the show starts. The show had already started. Basically, my guest and I were doing the show into the microphones being recorded. But the truth is that the show hadn't started yet. So I thought I should just start the show. So this is how the show starts. I asked the guest who they are. So who are you? Tom Gleeson. That's it. That's it.
1: <laughs> <laughs> I met another Tom Gleason the other day. Actually, really, I was in Byron Bay. Yeah, uh, having I was at a Mexican joint mm-hmm. um, having Miss
0: margarita. S-
1: no, it, it wasn't there. No. no, it's a little one in the mall. It's called oh. Chihuahua. I think. Oh yeah. Right. It's fantastic. I've seen that. Is it
0: good? It's yeah. great.
1: Yeah. yeah. Okay. And this guy walks up to me and he drops his license on the ground and he goes, he picks up the license. I didn't see him drop it. And he, pick, and he says, Oh, is this your license? And gives me his driver's license. And because I don't, I don't get jokes in real life, as you know, like I understand <laughs> jokes professionally, but in real life, they pass me by all the time. And I went, no, that's not my license. because it didn't have my photo on it. And I handed it back. It must be someone else's. And then he looked at me and he says, I'm trying to do a joke. And he pointed at the name and it said oh. Thomas Gleason, And his name was Tom Gleason. And I said, oh, sorry, you're doing a joke. Sorry, buddy. Um, See, nice to meet you, Tom And
0: Now I wish he was on my podcast. Because yeah. I have so <laughs> many more questions for him than I have for you. Because I want to know so much from him. I yeah. want to know how he feels about that. Like, what was your impression? Did you did feel like it was a good connection? Because I once... I've talked about this on the podcast before, but got a Facebook message from a guy... And I didn't read the name of the person before I read the message. You know, when you're just flicking through yeah. you know, messages and it just said, you ruined my life. Oh. And I'm just like, oh, my God, who is yeah. this? What have I done? Like going through past people I've wronged or whatever or might have accidentally wronged in some way and yeah. like catastrophizing who it is. And so I click on his profile and his name is Will Anderson. Yeah. <laughs> and I'm just <laughs> like, oh, I'm sorry. Oh, okay. Like,
1: yeah. Well, I asked him, I said, is it how, like I said, yeah. apologies for the association he said no to be um, he said it's it's been nothing but good he's, he's pretty happy with it That's good. the thing that I find amusing is he looks nothing like me he um he has he sort of has darker skin black hair about the same height probably in his 20s quite attractive right like he it kind of looks like Nick Kyrios to me just in real oh. basic terms okay so I look at him and I'm like you're not Tom Gleason. I am like it's, was he younger than you? He was younger than me Yeah,
0: so he's like the next model
1: Yeah, that's right He's
0: the upgrade He's yeah. like the next generation Tom Gleason.
1: So he was He went off and sat down And then we're talking And my kids were finding it hilarious That there was someone else called Tom yeah. Gleason Because I, I also have Like a, a cousin of mine named his son Tom Gleason, And so that's always another source of humour <laughs> And so they're looking across And I said, oh, is he still there? And they went, yeah So on the way out I said, oh, we've got to get a photo together Do you want to get a photo? And he said, yeah, and so we got a photo together and he said, oh, that's my new profile pic. He was quite happy with that. But as I was leaving, I realised there had been quite a long gap between him dropping his licence and me just walking up to him saying, would you like your photo with me? And so everyone else, <laughs> everyone else in the area would have just heard me walk up to some guy, some young kid who's hunched over his phone, would you like a photo with me, chap? Yes, okay. Well, very, there you go. There's your new profile pic. Anyone else? You well, know, like- I
0: mean, here's the thing. I know that's a joke. Yeah. I wonder what the percentage of the cafe would be if you... Like, I mean, someone who, like, you know, won the Gold Logie. If you're talking about things that are kind of just in popular culture, Mm. like, we have very few signifiers of popular culture moments, but, like, the Gold Logie is actually one of those things, right? Like, it's when it comes to television and entertainment, it's kind of our our version of Night of Nights. It has a cultural background.
1: It gets you on the front page of every newspaper, except TV Week, I've found. Anyway, that's weird. (laughs) So but, right? But, yeah.
0: but this is it. Yeah. This, this kind of kind of quaint like you know historically quaint competition mm. that we've decided is like an important thing. It has a cultural crossover. Like yeah. you said, every newspaper. So yes. it doesn't matter if you're a person who reads like the Murdoch papers or you're a person who reads the Fairfax papers, you're still seeing it being reported. You might be interpreting it through your own prism, but you get it, you're aware of it. so. With that in mind, yes. If you went into just an average cafe, like mm. I reckon a whole bunch of people are going to be like, hey, we saw Tom Gleason tonight, right? So, how many yeah. do you think out of, say, let's say there was 20 people at the cafe, if you just announced that you were the gold Logie winner and you were willing to take photos with people, how many people would have taken you up on the photo? Oh, uh,
1: about eight.
0: And I reckon, <laughs> so well,
1: it's not bad. Well, I think that it's, <laughs> I'm a bit of a numbers guy. So, if you go strictly on the numbers, uh-huh. I think the Logie's, maybe it had around a million viewers. Right. So it's at one in 25 Australians okay. watched it. Mm-hmm. So then there has to be the number that remembered it. So what's that one in 30, maybe one in 40? Yeah, but lots of numbers people would have good. read about it and not watched it. Like, oh, yeah, People that's would possible. have
0: seen the reporting of it more than they probably saw the actual. Yeah,
1: Logies but then you're themselves. in the territory of like, I know your face from somewhere, but I can't remember. I remember you did something. Uh, you're in the news. I ha- I've had. Yeah. Walking around Byron, I've had a lot of people recognize me from Facebook, right. like, but what they're referring to is, and I'm talking about tourists because they've often got an accent, yeah. like they'll be, you know, from Europe and, you know, a lot of overseas people here are trapped in Byron. And they're like, oh, yeah, I saw you on Facebook. And I'm like, what are you talking about? And it's like, and, and then they just describe how I paid out Byron Bay for a segment I did on Charlie's show, The <laughs> Weekly, and I, when I told everyone to not visit Byron Bay ever. So that obviously has been passed around a lot on Facebook and that's all they know. Or someone else said, I saw you on the news. And I'm like, oh, what did I do on the news? And they're like, you paid out Byron Bay. And I'm like, oh, that's right. That would have become news on Win or whatever the local thing is. And Did yeah.
0: you consider that at all when you decided you were going to spend several months basically living <laughs> in Byron Bay? Did that come into your planning considerations at all about how will that like, – Because there are some places you'd be guaranteed, oh, it's okay. They will get this as a joke. It'll be great that I'm in town. They are as in on the joke as I was when I was making the joke. Yeah. And then there are some other places where I think I'd be interested to know what the reaction is.
1: Yeah. Well, to to just re-explain it for anyone that hasn't seen it, it's sort of instead of get away, it's go away. So I just I tell people all the reasons to not go somewhere. It's just an opposite joke. Mm. And. It's presented like getaway, but every single line in the story is disparaging. Like there's not one wasted sentence. There's not what every single sentence is a dig. It's just dig after dig after dig. And Byron Bay, I wasn't worried about. I did one on Launceston. I went back there and did a show afterwards and it sold out the fastest I've ever had a show sell out because they're just happy to be mentioned. Yeah. And also it was, <laughs> you know, and all it was funny. It was like, the, the energy in that crowd was phenomenal. I walked out on stage and I said, I just love this place. <laughs> And everyone, so, and everyone already got the joke. I'm, yeah, and I'm like, yeah. I'm. It's just so good to yeah. be here. I said I can't think of a bad word to yeah. say about this town, and it's just yeah. Off, off you go.
0: Yeah. What I a great opportunity to open a show by doing to a, a punchline yeah. to a joke you've set up previous <laughs> yeah. to the show.
1: Yeah, and also yeah, and like complimenting a town yeah. as a comedian, as you know, is just the suckiest way to <laughs> to to introduce yourself on stage. Oh yeah, it's great to be here. Like it's a cliche, but um, I haven't been back to Cairns. Kansas is the only place I'm a bit worried about, because, uh-huh. but I mean, that's probably more because I looked at the representation in the media. Like, Kansas Post went after me pretty hard. But having said that, I don't think Kansas Post represents everyone in Kansas. I think there are a lot of ABC viewers who have a sense of humour. Yeah, I'm sure. Yeah, that is absolutely. But I haven't been. Guys. I've got a bit of a thing about Cairns I haven't been back there. It might be my Gold Coast. Like you have your Gold Coast. Maybe Kansas is my Gold Coast. <laughs> <laughs>
0: I think you've got to have one. You've got to at least have one. So, um, the other thing that I would love to ask this Tom Gleason is how his relationship to your work is. Because mm. I think that I have a deeper affinity for TV's Adam West since I found out that his real name is William Anderson and that he changed it to Adam West <laughs> for show business. I've always taken, I wow. think, an extra interest in Adam West's career because of
1: that. And now you feel like you've made a massive misstep because you're like, your name is clearly not good for show business and you forged ahead anyway with the name Will Anderson like some idiot I when you, you should have changed it. I like to think that I've done the opposite.
0: <laughs> I like to think that I've proved adam west doubts about his own name wrong oh, right! like yeah. he yeah. had a moment where he said you can never have a career in show business yeah you know with a name like will anderson mm. and i've said mate i see your challenge and yeah. i'm going to prove to you yeah i hope he lives to see
1: it oh <laughs> he's no longer with us but how good would it be to think of adam west just walking past a giant just. will anderson poster on at the opera house and he's like Oh my god! <laughs> I could have sold out the opera house using my real name, and I'm walking down the street like some Adam West chump. <laughs> he had an alias even in his real life, didn't he? <laughs> like, oh, what? Well, well, yeah, he's like he gets to be Batman. Batman has two two personas, and then even and then he had Will Anderson was his who but he really I, was.
0: I wonder. Like, because he would have, like, because people knew him as Adam West. It's not like, Hmm. I wonder what people talked to in his real life, like when he was talking to his family and stuff. Do you think they still called him William, or do you think that they would have eventually started calling him Adam?
1: Oh, it would become, oh, that's always tricky, isn't it? I've always found that your old friends will keep that name. Like, we've both got a good friend, a stand up who we know called Subby Valentine, and he's gone under the name Subby Valentine, but his real name is Stuart. And all his friends call him Stu. And I'm still not used to it because I work with him on radio. And I call him Subby because when I met him, when we started 25 years ago, he was Subby. So to me, he was always Subby because his last name's Sutherland. Sutherland became Subby. Subby became Subby. So Subby Valentine's. So he's Subby to me. But I'll still meet up with him and his mates at the pub. And I'm like, G'day, Subby. And they're like, G'day, Stu. G'day, Stu. G'day, Stu. And I'm like, I know him really well too. Like they feel like better friends because they use his real name.
0: The one that I... Find uh, this is the one that just in my personal life is uh, so people may or may not know so I w- anyway Trevor Marmalade who's a, was a well known Australian comedian yes um that's not his real name yeah but every time I see him I call him Trev he's Trev yeah.
1: I mean, Marmalade, you're like, you don't say, Mr. Marmalade, nice to see you again. Like, you're pretty sure that the Marmalade bit's not right. But no. He's still Trev.
0: I call him a nickname of his already made up name. (laughs) Like, you know, (laughs) like, I'm like, (laughs) no, now you're Trev. That's actually a nickname of the name. I'm
1: going to be more familiar with the name that you made up. Yeah, so yeah. Like, <laughs> mate, if
0: I wanted to be called Trev, when I was making up this name, I could have made it up yeah. as
1: Trev. I'm not Trev. I'm Trevor. Trevor, treat my fictional name with respect. <laughs> Very... <laughs> uh,
0: I ask people on this uh, podcast if they have some sort of life philosophy. Is mm. really the general premise, and then we just talk yep. about life from there. So, do you, do you subscribe to something? Is there some sort of guiding principle or something that you could you know put into some sort of words that explains Mm. your
1: life perspective? It's pretty hard. Um, I haven't had to question my life for a really long time. So I've just kind of glided through it. Uh, So I think if I think way, way, way back, and even this is outdated, I think when I was a teenager and I was struggling with what all everything means. So I went to a Catholic high school, so God existed. And then I realised that I don't think God exists. And that was that a big thing for me. Like, oh, God, mm. what a shame. You die, there's nothing. And and my brother was an atheist and it was a lot to cope with for me, me at the time. It all sounds a little bit funny now when I look back on it, but it was serious at the time. And so the best I could manage as I was trying to have that sort of teenage existential um, freak out was that the only the, – there was a version of um, – eternity or living beyond your life in really simple ways and they were two they could you could you could reproduce yourself in art and physically so I think from then on I thought if I had children and I actually created something that was bigger than myself I'd be happy and so I but I did that ages ago and so now <laughs> I'm like well what else do I do
0: <laughs> okay so two things that yeah. I think are really great in that yeah. that I would like to unpack a little bit more so the idea of recreation of self like the idea of legacy of self yeah in that it even feeling important to you so is that something that does feel important to you does it still feel important to you that there is some sort of post you legacy of your life
1: well let's just say i've ticked a lot of boxes so i mean i did i just like the idea that I don't know, I affected people, that when that when I was no longer around, people would tell cool stories about me. Mm-hmm. I, that's what I always felt. And so I, I would have hated the idea that somehow it just made no difference whether I was here or not. It's a pretty egocentric view, but it's pretty accurate. Um, and with children, having children for me was like, for me that was more just a being part of life, like feeling like you're part of something bigger, that there were you came from other people and you passed on to other people and you were just this tiny little link in this really long stretch of humanity. So I enjoy the humbling nature of just being a link as opposed to... So it's weird. There are two thoughts that are quite... One's quite lofty. I want to be an artist and I want to affect people and I want to express myself. And then the other is I want to be really quite ordinary and just be a dad.
0: It's interesting that they do seem like to... Really compelling extremes. Like yeah. in some ways, one by doing one, you reduce your capacity to do the other. I mean, yeah. and, I, and I maybe maybe you don't, but I think in a practical sense, at the very least, if you're saying I want to dedicate my life to leaving a great legacy of art, like something that's going to get in the way of you working on your art is going to be the idea that you're going to have to you know humble yourself to you know kind mm. of you know be the parent to these children. But maybe maybe it doesn't. Maybe it gives you something bigger than that also that you take back into your art? Do you think that your art, this is probably a really indelicate way to ask this question, but Mm. I think you'll understand what I'm trying to say is, do you think that your art would be better or worse without having children?
1: I feel like everything got heaps better for me when I had children because it just kind of, it did a lot. I I feel like, and it's hard not to say this without it sounding a bit insulting because you don't have children, but like, you don't have children for whatever reason that you don't want to have them, or, or or you may want to have them. But for me, I remember when I was going to have my first baby, coming up to that time, and running into lots of comedians saying, "Oh, you're not going to be one of those comedians who just bangs on about their kids, are you?" And I would, my my glib answer would always be, "Yeah, yeah." The most amazing thing would happen to me ever in my life. I would create another life from scratch, and I'd look at it and go, "There's nothing in this." Right. So that's ludicrous, right? But then the other thing is, again, I'm, I kind of always play the numbers. I just realized that I'd actually swam into the mainstream. The vast majority no. of people have children. Yeah. It's actually was probably more unusual to be however old I I think I was early 30s, and to not have kids. So for me to have kids, it just. I just suddenly could go to family barbecues and follow what was going on, whereas before people would be talking about what schools their kids went to and I'd be like, I don't care and I don't know what's going on. So for me, it just felt like I was, I don't know, getting in touch with the mainstream. Yeah, you have a
0: connection to the people that you're talking to. Yeah, that's right. And you actually understand their lives and you like, and it's not like you're making a list at home. Like you're going to a, you know, parents barbecue and going, oh, this is great. I'll do all this secret research on what normies are like.
1: No, like you, it's just you, that's how you. I living. infiltrated. Yeah. <laughs> I infiltrated the mainstream. Kind of is what I did,
0: actually. Had kids, Will, just to be <laughs> honest, to broaden my appeal. Yeah, yeah, it is
1: kind of, well, you know, when I was at uni, I was in a band and doing crazy stuff, and as life's gone on, I've gotten more and more conservative looking, and it's only because I was trying to trying to infiltrate the mainstream. Anywhere where is reason I wear a suit is so people listen to what I'm saying.
0: It is funny, isn't it, that you mentioned the suit thing, I find that, I think this year more than any other year where I was just saying to you, the majority of the meetings I now do for the television show are all done from this office we're sitting in right now. So I'm normally, as I was today for my meeting, Hmm. in my swimmers because i have gone to the beach, you know, earlier in the day. And when I go and put on the suit to do the show, every time I look at myself in a suit, I just think, this is not your fault. But there is something wrong with society that demands that I am like all the ideas that are in the show. Yeah, I was in meetings where I came up with them in my tracksuit pants or my swimmers. Yeah, but for and the ideas don't get any better because I've put on a suit, but for some reason, people are more acceptable of those ideas if I put on the suit.
1: Yeah, I just think it's a convention. I think wearing a suit on a brightly lit set just creates a blank canvas on which people listen to your ideas. Uh, if you wear a jumper that's uh, pilling and, like, a bit rough, everyone will just look at that the whole night and comment on that and nothing else. It's the, the sad fact. I mean, when I wear a suit on Hard Quiz, I feel like I'm putting on, like, my uh, battle fatigues. It's good. I put it on and I run through the door and I'm ready to fight. I like it. I, it sort of it gets me sort of... It puts me in that game show mode too And like hard quiz in the way that it looks Like the suit and everything When we were putting it all together My idea was that it should look like it's on channel 9 Right It should have that look That's why I'm wearing a blue suit That's why I'm wearing a striped tie I wanted to look conservative And I wanted it to look... Exactly like Hot Seat or something mm-hmm. like that I wanted to look exactly the same Except when I opened my mouth Things were not right at all
0: Right You don't have to, cha- <laughs> you don't have to signal with everything else yes. The funny thing is that it's the normal convention Of how these shows would appear yeah. And then the difference is in you that's it. Essentially. Yeah, yeah right? everything
1: would look right. The podiums, the contestants, the audience, everything would look yeah. right except my behaviour.
0: Yeah, except yeah. you're not Eddie Maguire or you're not That's Grand or whatever. Yeah, yeah
1: like a, say a movie like Flying High or Airplane, as they call it in the US, it's all very serious and the pilots are serious and they're all they're worried about this airplane except things are happening that shouldn't be happening. But it all looks like serious business except that they're behaving the wrong way. There's something good about that. I think, yeah, I think a lot of TV shows sometimes make mistakes in comedy where, yeah, everything tries to be funny, funny set, funny people, funny dress, funny voices. funny And it, it's like I feel like sometimes you just need one thing to be skew and then it sticks out a bit more.
0: I, again, this is not to speak ill of anybody, but I recently, in the last couple of years, saw a show um, where the set just, I remember when... Yeah, the host walked out in front of this set. I was like, The only way you can justify the set that you are currently on, how busy it is, how much shit is going on in this set, like how crazy <laughs> everything is, yeah. is that this entire 12 season show that's going to go for an hour and a half every week is you gradually going through and explaining <laughs> what's on your set. And you're going to need 12 hour and a half episodes to get through this fucking set. Yeah. Like, and I do understand what you mean about that idea of. No, 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 that's too much. You're telling us everything about the show on the set, which is not necessary. Like there's going to be a show in front of the set. But that idea of, it it strikes me even more hilarious that I think that you'd be more likely if you were trying to make a show like Hard Quiz at a commercial network, Mm -hmm. they wouldn't let you replicate the commercial network you would have to signal that it was somehow yes. different to their other shows and a little bit more crazy <laughs> and wacky it was only because yeah. you could make that you could only make that channel nine show at the abc
1: <laughs> yeah i know but the weird thing is i could really imagine it working on a commercial network i mean i, I think I, now, I can imagine it being ruined as well but i yeah. could but like when for me i think i watched you know uh blankety blanks has got like a a real like it's 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 got a place in TV folklore because it was... I think it was the highest rating show of all time or something. Its share was massive and it only ran for about three years or something. And But I'd never seen it because where I grew up, we had ABC and we had the local commercial network, which was called Nine and Eight. It was, to, it was like Tari um, and Tamworth had combined to become one network. So mm. we had two channels. So there was no Channel 10 where I was, so we didn't get blankety blanks. Kids from my local primary school would go on holidays to the Gold Coast and come back telling us about this amazing show called Blankety Blanks. So I think it was the night before I recorded the very first hard quiz, I watched a whole episode of Blankety Blanks to see what the fuss was about. And when I watched it, I was struck by a few things. One was it was actually quite slow because, you know, the the conventions of TV changes. It's actually quite laboured. Plus, I could see Graham Kennedy's ad-libbing coming from a bit far off, like just because I know how people think when they ad lib, but the irreverence, I I was like, Oh, I get it. They just love him taking the piss. That's it. So I was already in that mindset anyway, but I thought, Oh, I'm going to just not take anything seriously at any point when I do this quiz and I'm going to be irreverent about everything all the time. And it sort of, I thought, well, it worked for him. It could work for me. And I've sort of, it it made me feel good. Rather than feeling like I was a trailblazer, I felt a bit of a connection to what had been before Mm -hmm which was good.
0: I think that there's something about that connection with the past. So, because it's interesting, because Graham Graham Kennedy uh, is one name, obviously, from that era. And I think to a certain extent, you know, what Norman Gunston did, they're two things that are from the history of Australian television, revered things from the history of Australian television, but perhaps their connection points to some things that are happening today aren't as clear, but I think that in what you did around the Logies, that had a lot of Norm Gunston about it. And, you know, you talk about Hard Quiz having a bit of Graham Kennedy about it. It's interesting that there is that connection in your work with those.
1: Yeah. I mean, I collect from so many different things like that. I've just like, some things have had a little impact things Other things have had a massive impact, but, um, With Norman Gunston, I remember finding him funny as a kid, but I don't – it was so long ago I can't remember where I Mm. saw it. I must have watched little bits of it when my parents watched it. I think it was all done at Channel 7 by the time I was probably getting to an age where I was choosing shows that I wanted to watch. Um, But my dad used to always tell me about – he would often recall things that he had done and tell funny stories, and the two that he's done – that probably I've just duplicated without thinking about it, but just my dad would always get into fits of laughter as he would describe how Norman Gunson quite often used to finish his program uh, telling the audience how met how bad the ratings were or how well they were doing and how people had to do better at home. Yeah. And I've copied that because when, whenever the ratings come out, I always put them on social media because a lot of people like to hide behind their network. So I'll always go in your face to Current Affair when we beat a Current Affair or suck shit the block, we've beaten you. That's all Norman Gunston. And then the Gold Logie... I only knew about that because my dad told me that he basically campaigned mercilessly on his TV show to get people to win. And then he won and it actually worked. And the joy with which my dad used to say that it actually worked. That's when I thought, oh yeah, there's something really in that. And um, so I had that in the back of my mind. Then there's also the chaser, a good mates of mine, Uh you know, I saw them messing around with the logies in the the mid naughties when Chaz was doing his bonehead challenge where he'd get in the background of every shot and I would sit at home and watch that and just love it. And I'm like finally someone's actually being entertaining yeah. in this format.
0: Right, it's a yeah, it's a night of entertainment it's and somebody's entertainment. being entertaining. Yeah. And it's not part of the planned entertainment, but no. it's Entertainment, Yeah. And we're all entertainers. Yes. And this entertaining thing is happening around this entertainment. Aren't yeah. we actually the entertainment industry?
1: That's right. This
0: thing is entertaining.
1: And also, I've been to many, many Logies yeah. where I've sat at the back. And as a performer and as a professional show-off, to sit that close to live TV and have no impact on it is excruciating. <laughs> you have to watch people be very boring on stage for years and years and years and years. And you're like, if only I was in front of the camera, I'd do this and I'd do that and I'd do this. So then the whole Grant Danya thing happened where I campaigned for him and, and we will never know whether he won on his own or whether it was due to my help. But yeah. he did thank me in his speech. Yes. Well, but after that, well, I realized we'll never know. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> well, well, it's. I was uniquely placed after that because I realised. Yeah. Well, if I could have had that bigger impact yeah. on someone who wasn't me, if I actually turned that back on yeah. myself, I actually this could actually work. So then I just, I basically I could see a I could see a straight line to it working. So I thought I'll just I'll go for it.
0: Were you worried at all? About I mean, part of like what makes you so unique as a performer is that you. Had have a very, you know, often like from a comic point of view, and I'll you know look. I'll start with me because I am, you know, I am so much more pretense the other way, right? Like I underplay everything, and that's Mm. as like you know, it's it's the same sort of pretense, like in the same way as you are not as egotistical or arrogant as like the acts can be sometimes yeah like i am nowhere near as humble as i you know pretend to be through you
1: know not even the the audience knows that
0: yeah right (laughs) yeah i mean but that's
1: well you're on a stage right (laughs) being humble exactly right there is
0: if you take any moment to pick it apart you've got to understand
1: (laughs) you turned up and there were lights and you had a poster and now you're humble after all that
0: yeah, and okay. also, but even just to me, like <laughs> yeah. the lie to myself, yeah. like where it'd be like, yeah, I'd never like post the ratings of the show. The ratings that I checked the second that they came out, that when <laughs> our ratings were really good, I got this enormous sense of pride. I compared around to how everybody else was going yeah. in relation to my success. Yeah, you never post And then them. I was like, I wouldn't post those. I'm mm. a real humble guy. Yeah.
1: yeah. Well, the other day I realised I was really relaxed because I didn't check them till 11.
0: Yeah.
1: <laughs> I was having a good... I thought, it's, it's been two hours. I haven't thought about what they are. And then I checked them. They're good again. And I was like, there we go. There's a dopamine hit. Right. It's better than checking retweets. <laughs> yeah, but I put it on. But yeah, I don't so know. So it's not
0: you. So the, yeah. my, my point being is that I know you on stage and off stage. Mm-hmm. And I know that part of what you can do on stage is pretense and bravado. But when you start to take that into the real world, hmm. it is different. Like an audience who've come along to see you, you can, yeah, they've implicitly agreed by paying the ticket price and coming along that whatever you want to do in that room is, yeah you know, open, you know, so, but when you just take that out into the streets, <laughs> yeah, like there's a lot of people who haven't signed up.
1: I know. There are a lot of people they're? who some people had never even seen me before. You yeah. know, I think Patty Newton was upset that I was nominated for gold Logie because she'd never heard of me. And it's like, well, it's not my fault. You haven't watched my very popular show. <laughs> you know, it's like, what, what do you want me to do? I I, I hid my show on a major network. <laughs>
0: <Like> <laughs> I mean, in a prime time slot. Yeah, in a
1: prime time slot. But it's... um. But, you know, the way I did it, though, was I, I, I always just thought it's funny that if you want something to ask for yes. it, like even when I've done publicity and stuff mm. for the last, as long as I can remember, I, ha- I stopped being humble because I felt like it was a bit of a waste of time. And it reminded me a bit of like, I remember when I first went to boarding school, my dad said to me, he said, uh, when you go to play cricket, they're going to say, who wants to open the bowling? And what you do is you just say, I do. Because at least you'll get to open the bowling once. Because you'll either do it and then you'll be the opening bowler from then on, or it won't work and you'll get put down the list. But you're not going to spend the whole summer in the field going, if only they would give me a chance. So I've kind of always had that kind of, if I want it, I'll just ask for it. So then with this whole Logie nonsense. I just, I only just did each step of the road. I just yeah. would go, I'd just go on the weekly and say, you should all vote for me for whatever reason. And then I'd see that it would get a big reaction. I just kept following it through and I just kept following it and following it. But I must admit there was like when in the last week, I had many times where I thought I've pushed this boat really far out. And I, and I knew I had to follow it. it was, I'd gone too far yeah. and I had to go all the way to the top of the mountain and there were times I, I mean I was saying to my wife, I was like, I've just gone, um oh, I, I was starting to think And all this time I knew I had to do the opening to the logies. No one it was a surprise. Yeah. And I still had to walk out and do that, which is a tough gig. And I was like I might walk out and people might just boo before I've started right. for all of my behavior. Right. So that, ha- and I said, so the opening happened and it was good. And I was like, great job done. I probably won't win. It's fine. Then it all happened. And even after it, it took me quite a while to work out what it meant. Cause at first, cause you're surrounded in the room and in the industry by so many people who have all their weird, to be honest, out of whack views of what it all means. Right. But when they're the only people you talk to, it can be disorienting. But then a few things happen. I went on the morning shows and everyone had a laugh. I'm like, great. The shows I was doing, the stand-up shows started to sell out and Hard Quiz started to uh, rate more. If Hard Quiz started to rate less and I couldn't sell any tickets to live shows, Mm -hmm. I would have thought I'd made a massive mistake. But it did cross my mind that I might have. So there were times I was like, oh, God, what have I done? But then as I got out and about and I got tired from doing high fives from people in the street, it was pretty clear that it was well received. But there was a time right in the middle, in the eye of the storm, where it's like, what the fuck have I done? I
0: remember... I I think I had more faith in it than you had faith in it.
1: Well, because you're in it and you're, and you're getting... It, it is weird to read headlines about yourself that are just not true as well. Like, like you know... Yes. You know, and oh, rank outsider wins gold Logie. I was always the favourite. What do you mean, yeah. rank outsider? Surprise upset. Uh, all the people who voted for me are not upset. <laughs> you know, right. And otherwise known as the majority of voters. You know, there's a lot to... When you read all those headlines, it it does mess with you a bit.
0: Well, it paints a very different picture to the reality of the situation. And I think one of those mind-blowing things is when you realise, see, this I think is one of the amazing things to realise as someone who commentates and judges other people and, you know, talks about, you know, issues and issues in the world things that we read in newspapers or things that we see on tv shows and decide to have an opinion about yeah. is how often when we go through those experiences how they're reported is very different to what is really going on yeah and so you've got to extrapolate that out to go well in a lot of cases that the information i'm getting about things is probably not entirely accurate
1: yeah. You know, well, I, I I actually talked to Amanda Keller the other day on 2WS. I went yeah. on her show and I was promoting the hard quiz book. And it was good because, as you know, the only reason I could carry on like a idiot was because I actually have no malice. I don't have any problems with anyone. That's yeah. why I can carry on like that because it doesn't mean anything to me. Yeah. I went to boarding school. We talked rubbish about each other all day and it all meant nothing, if anything it was affection because the people I actually dislike I just don't even talk about.
0: Yeah. No, you're absolutely right.
1: Yeah. Like I couldn't
0: have done it Mm. because there would have been people going, yeah, he does hate that
1: person. (laughs) I was like, (laughs) Yeah. yeah, yeah, absolutely right. But talking to Amanda was great because I got to say to her, Something very clear And that was She was really hard to make fun of To the point where The best joke I could make up Was that she was untrustworthy Because on Beyond 2000 She said we'd have flying cars Mm. And we never did That's it So that's all I'd ever said And then she voiced her displeasure And she said And this seems pretty clear to me Looking at it She just said she didn't like the fact That media kept on pitting us all as like You know Me versus her and I said, well, yeah, I never did that. That was the media. That's the way the media works. You know, there's someone's winner, someone's a loser. And I think she just got sick of that narrative, which makes sense. But I didn't do that. I didn't write all the articles. I no. Did. I gave them a lot of fodder though. You
0: did. Yeah. Well, you they were going to write the article anyway. You yeah. just gave them some quotes for the article. Yeah, I did.
1: <laughs> <laughs> this is a tasty quote. What do you need? Yeah. Um,
0: it's... It it is interesting though, like, because you are, like you say, you don't have any, you know, genuine malice for anybody that you're making fun of, but that doesn't mean that's going to be the way it's received by the people that you're making fun
1: of. No, but I don't mind it. Because I also, it's like with the quiz. So I make fun of the contestants. Yeah. The contestants make fun of me as well. And the, the joie de vivre of that is just great. There's something really intimate about the show that we seem like we're we're actually good mates. I've never seen them before in my life. But by the end of the show, we're like this little gang. And I actually have, whenever I see former contestants out and about in the world, we've got so much to talk about. And And I feel like we're friends, you know, because we've sort of been through this weird thing together. But it's like, I don't know. It's like I feel that, that when people take it the wrong way, I have no problem with that because I I still think all the funniest kind of uh, stuff that I've enjoyed over the years is a little bit divisive. I feel like if you're actually going to do something that has just a little bit of edge to it or whatever, it's going to piss people off. And I do feel you have to... It, whenever you, you, you know you like doing stand-up, you're thinking new material and you go, oh, this is going to be great. And then in the back of your mind, you're like oh, but what is such and such going to think about me doing this bit? And the fact that you're worried about it means you're actually talking about something good that's actually got some flavor in it because you think, oh, when my wife sees this bit, she's going to be annoyed or or my mum's not going to like this bit or oh, the people who work at the ABC are going to get the shits with me saying this. The fact that you actually care and empathize with other people's opinions means that you're actually in interesting territory. Whereas, you know, if you're just thinking, oh, I'm going to you know, talk about the shortcomings of being a middle-aged man who's bald, oh, oh, no one's going to be offended. Well, it's probably boring. So, you know, you got to – I always feel like you're in good territory when you're close to pissing people off or yeah. pissing them off.
0: Well, yeah, but I think that oh, I, maybe I would argue that – What you're saying is correct, but it's not a choice of two things. I actually think there's like an extreme either side of what you're saying, which is like the person who tries to piss no one off, like you said, innocuous Hmm. sort of middle ground material that'll offend the least amount of people. But then there's the person who pisses everybody off. Yeah. Where you're just like, that also doesn't seem like... Well, that's a bad numbers game. Yeah. Yeah.
1: (laughs) Yeah. Yeah, I know. I don't. I I try to piss off people yeah. who don't buy tickets to yeah. my live shows, <laughs> yeah. and I try to please the people that do. Yes. And same with, I mean, same with TV audience. Yes. Like, if people watch my show and enjoy it, I, when people complain about my show on Facebook or whatever, and they post, I, yeah. I love it. I find it. It's it's not that often because most people don't bother, mm. but it's um. It's always funny when people just feel like they can let me know just quietly how much they dislike my show. But I I don't know, it's funny.
0: Have you always (laughs) thought that was funny? Like, have you always had that attitude? Because I actually agree with you Uh, now. Yeah. Like, I am now at a point where I find it funny. Mm. Like, I find all that stuff Endlessly amusing. But I only came to this point in the last three or four years, I think, and probably, you know, you know more this year in particular. I think during this time when there's just been some time to think about things yeah. a well, little there's, bit more.
1: It's the advantage of incumbency, you know, when you've been doing something for a while and you know that it's working. I, I was very early on in all projects I've done when, that, when The Weekly first launched on the ABC, that was a big moment when Hard Quiz first started. I'm reading the numbers. I, I I actually read feedback quite extensively and I'm just trying to, I'm not adjusting my performance based on it, but I just want to know that I'm on the right track. Like if I read nothing but vitriol, just constant and no positive, then it's like, oh, well, that didn't work. But, you know, if I'm thinking, oh, you know, one person's calling me an asshole for every 20 people that like it, I'm like, oh, yeah, it's pretty good. I'm on the right track the negativity falls away. So I don't get it so much now also because my act's quite robust. So you got to be pretty confident if you want to fling an insult my way. So I'm quite happy to read it. And I often reply and mess with their heads. (laughs) For my own amusement. <laughs> I often agree with them. That's a really good point. I didn't think of it that way. I actually sometimes do agree with them. Yeah, I, sometimes, like, uh, I do agree like sometimes, there's,
0: yeah. You know, there's aspects of, you know, say the way my voice sounds. Or, yeah.
1: <laughs> like it's like
0: when somebody complains on this yeah. podcast that I say like too much or I say, yeah. you know, too much. And I'm like... Yeah, I also agree. It would be a better podcast if I said those things <laughs> less. But what I've discovered is I'm I'm incapable of
1: saying those things yeah. less. Yeah, Your dislike of the podcast yeah. is nothing compared with your self-loathing. Yeah, like it's like it's that's deeper and harder to live with and harder to escape. You can leave. You can leave the podcast in your phone. You still have to walk around with your shortcomings. <laughs> yeah, yeah.
0: Like, when people say, "Oh, yeah, I don't like the way your voice sounds," I'm like. That's just one of those things that I can't mm. – this is my voice now.
1: Yeah. Like,
0: what, what am I meant to do with that information? <laughs> like,
1: I'll go and get elocution lessons <laughs> to really nail this thing. What's the purpose of that feedback?
0: Yeah. So did this time of COVID, of world interruption – like, I'm interested in your perspective on how big an event you think the global pandemic is in a sort of – context of our lives in a historical context is this like you know this massive thing that will you know revolutionize the way that we think communicate live you know interact Mm. or is this just a blip and we're getting back to normal soon do you think it's momentous has it changed you in any way or i'm interested in your perspective
1: Mm. yeah um i was determined to downplay it Mm. i was worse than trump I was like, oh, I had swine flu. Two weeks later, I felt better. Who cares? Whatever, it's fine. I was isolated at home. Who, you know, if you're older, you die. That's already the case. Whatever, we'll lose ABC viewers. You know, that's all I was. was, That's how I was going. And I was, and remember, I saw you before Melbourne was cancelled. And I'm like, comedy fest will be cancelled. That just means I don't have to do, I can stay home instead of doing gigs. Sounds pretty good to me. And like, and but reality, reality hit probably three weeks after that, where I was like, wow, this is going to take ages, (laughs) (laughs) but I was really, I am a very optimistic person. And I also feel, I also feel like almost an obligation. I think people see that in me. And I mean, my family, you know, my, my wife and my children, and I feel, and the, the town I live in. I think people look to me to think everything's going to be okay. I don't think that's too self-important. So I try to, oh, it's, I'm sure it's fine. You know, I'd be like, we're in the country where we live. We're okay. You know, we can visit each other in the yard, just, you know, keep a bit of space. And I was all try to be um, positive about it. And then as time wore on, it really started to unnerve me. And then the other thing, the probably the big lesson I learned over that time, because... Because we, well, I certainly had a long time of doing nothing and I was planning on having time off anyway. And I always thought I'd be really good at doing nothing. I was really looking forward to taking time out and just, you know, relaxing because last year was really full on and I thought I'm just going to spend months and months and months of just taking it easy. And I always thought that I was a laid back dude. Nothing really phases me. And what I discovered was that when I had nothing to do at all, I started to fill all my waking moments with worrying about shit I didn't have to, mm-hmm. and it was actually quite uh, difficult. And so, for a while, I was doing okay. And then after a few months, I was—I I'd still—I'd do all things, I like exercise, and you know, do all these things to positive things. You know, spend time with the family and just try to keep my um, keep my spirits up. But it got to the point where when I got to Byron, so I. I came up here in August, so I missed the second lockdown in Vic. Um, it was September, and I saw a poster for Mandy Nolan. She's a great comedian who's in this who's in the area, and she was running a workshop for people to do comedy. And I looked at Mandy's face in the poster, and I realised I really, really miss comedy because I, in having time off, I thought oh, I'd be interested to find out who I am without comedy, and the answer is I'm nobody. And, and by that, I mean, I actually am a comedian. It's what I am, it's yeah. a fundamental part of who I am. I thought it wasn't, I thought it's a dally, it's a thing I do. Yeah. And, 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 and I'm also a well rounded person. Yeah. I'm not well rounded at all, I'm a comedian. And I've got nothing else going for me. So I saw that poster and I thought, I need to go and hang out with a comedian uh-huh. and talk about comedy. And I went to their class and we did a workshop on comedy and I felt normal again. And then they did their first comedy night at the, at the, um, the Mullen Bimby RSL and I did a 10-minute spot. And I'm like, I'm back to normal because I did a gig. And it's so frightening how now I realized I always thought I'd retire early I'm not going to retire early. I'm going to do gigs forever because it's it's who I am. It's very interesting to me because I think
0: think that that's what I expected I would feel like and what I've found myself in a period of is like I'm definitely still like I, I, I wouldn't say it would be inaccurate to say that I'm not missing it at all. Because I do think mm-hmm. about it a lot. Because you
1: haven't done a gig, have you? Have not done a gig
0: since, since the last night Adelaide. in Adelaide. Yeah. yeah. Well, I mean the yeah, at home. But yeah, no gig in front of live people doing stand-up yeah. comedy since yeah, the last night of the Adelaide yeah. Fringe. And I've just made a few decisions about next year that it will probably mean that I won't maybe... There's a possibility I might take all the 2021 off as well. Right. Or at least off doing yeah like a touring show like I might get my kind of thought process at the moment is I might kind of get back into it next year at some stage and then hopefully kind of but for me it's about not about that I don't love doing comedy because I do like you know I'm you know I think I don't have to tell this to anybody fuck like this year was going to be my 25th comedy festival in a row like you know I the idea of like going a year without doing a show, like was something that I've never even considered up until this point. Mm. But I feel a bit, um, I don't really know what I would talk about. You know, when you imagine yourself up there, like I can't, like I've had a few opportunities to do things where I could have just done some old material or whatever. And I'm like, I don't even know how I feel about doing my old material at the moment because I just don't feel connected to that. Yeah. Like even just the ridiculousness of some of it. Like I was like, cause I was going through, oh, what could I do that isn't, I can't do the bushfire stuff. It just feels like, why well, are you talking about something that was topical, but isn't the topical thing that we should be talking about. And like, mm. oh, you've got this thing about not being able to remember your computer password. And in my head, I'm like, See, but this is even a lie now because I've spent so much time on my computer in the last seven months that I actually took a day, like, when I had some time off and I streamlined all my passwords. Yeah. I actually know my password to <laughs> everything at the moment. They're all one variation of the same yeah. thing. I've got them all in a file. Mm. Like, even this routine has been outdated by the life I've been living. Yeah. And so I was talking to you know people who needed to know if i wanted to do shows so they could book venues mm. about these things and i said to them i said it's not like i'm quitting or anything like i'm absolutely that's not what i'm doing but i don't think i think i'm just only going to come back when i feel like uh, you know like when it, it really is saying to me mm. come back because at the moment i just don't feel like Doing it, you're in the middle of it. You're like, you know, doing a show tonight. Yeah,
1: that's right. Yeah, no, I, th- I started again. The very beginning of me starting again was well, I had this show in Brisbane that's going to be on this Saturday, and it was um, postponed from earlier yeah. in the year. We had a similar date, and once the once Byron was started to be included as part of Queensland, I realised oh, I can get there, and I can actually do the gig, mm. and we can operate at fifty percent capacity. And so I thought, well, I've got to do that. But I also, because I'd done that gig for Mandy, for Mandy Nolan, where I just I jumped up and done a spot and suddenly I felt like I was back to normal. I'm talking about just like, almost like just, I just felt useful. I had a purpose. I had something to think about for the days leading up to the gig. What am I going to say? I'll say this, I'll say that. I did the gig. I was sociable. I hung out with other people. I thought, this is who I am. It's, I just felt normal again. I thought, you know, I can keep, Paddle boarding or swimming or lying around on the beach and reading books and whatever, and it's not going to get me what I need, and that is performing and being useful. So then I booked a run of shows at the Brunswick Heads Picture House and then we added more on and then Darwin popped up as an option and, and, and we got Toowoomba involved and Grafton and all these other gigs started popping in. And I felt like I said to... Um, our management who puts these shows together, I said, I feel like I'm lucky enough that I can put on a show at a drop of a hat. The show that I'm doing at the moment has so many weird parallels to COVID. It's ludicrous. So I had to change virtually none of the material. I had lots of material about spending too much time at home prior to the COVID. So it's anyway, it was a lot of stuff just still resonates. And, um, And I just felt like I had to get back out there for my own benefit. But also, I just thought, I can take the hit. If no one turns up because it's unsafe, I can take the hit. Uh, If it's a bit weird because it's half full and it doesn't quite work, I can take the hit. But I thought, I'm happy to take the hit. I'll get out there and I'll start doing shows because it'll be good for me. It'll be good for the people in the theatre. It'll be good for the audience. And it'll be good for all of us at the same time. And I did toy with thinking, I'll just wait it out. I'll wait until you can have 100% capacity and i can because i could wait until whenever a vaccine comes and start again but i thought nah i just feel like i've got to get on with it i felt like i don't know just it just felt like kind of what had to be done well i, I agree with what you're saying like in
0: that i think it's good for, like, as you said, the theatres, the employees. And I noticed, like, as you've been touring around, you've made a point of, like, getting your photo taken with the people who work there and, you know, sort of connect people. And I think this is one of the – I hope one of the benefits of this time is hmm. we will rediscover the importance of that connection and how everybody in the chain works together and how much one thing affects the other things. And yeah. that, just that deeper appreciation of not just me standing on a stage – in a full room full of people, you know, and it's all important and it's me. It's these people who work here. It's these people who made sure this was safe for everybody to come out and do this. Like there is a Mm. whole bunch of things that are connected to that process. But also it's a process of discovery around how we do those things and what they are going to be like. So people do have to go out there and do things. Like there is – it's a genuine – you know, like I mean you know it's genuinely part of I've been you know curious I was like you know how are your shows going like you mm. know what how are people responding like how are people responding
1: Oh it's it's been it's been amazing because it's it's I mean you saw the show when I did it the Adelaide Fringe there was an element of the show which was about putting that bad summer behind us so then just another big problem stacked up against that so. The theme of the show of having, getting together after a disaster and having a laugh and putting it behind you is still intact. And so that has been really valuable. And it's just, it's, it's just been amazing because you feel, I feel really connected to the audience anyway. Like I think, I was describing this to, I can't remember who it was the other day about how I, I feel like all comedians become worth their, um, They become worth something when they start to realise that their gigs are about the audience, not themselves. (laughs) Which I know sounds obvious, but when you first start, you're like, oh, am I funny? Did it work? Oh, did I die? Did I do well? Can I get five? Can I headline? Why don't I get a spot there? And it's all about me, 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 me. But but that continues also
0: on to like so often comedians judge how a gig went by how much you enjoyed yourself. Yeah, exactly. Versus how much the audience, you like, you know, you go, what wasn't as good as last night? And I was like, but yeah, but the audience there that were... That was great. Yeah, <laughs> it, that that'll do. You did your job. Yeah, everybody's happy.
1: But I don't know when it was. Maybe it was about ten years ago. It became really clear to me this idea of whether the audience had got their money's worth or not. Uh-huh. And so I feel I feel with these shows, I didn't I didn't want to feel like the audience was. Uh, it was like this charity gig, like they were turning up because it's what we all have to do. We've got to get the theatre going again and let's all go through the motions and do a gig. I wanted it to be genuine reverie. And so for that, it's been fun. And I have had a lot of people tell me it's the first time they've laughed that hard for a long time. And I can understand that because just being in a group and laughing is is an amazing sensation. It's a very
0: different thing to laughing alone. Yeah. And that's the power of it. And that's why it will come back and mm. it is already coming back. But is have you noticed, I suppose, some of the places you've been playing, they've been living reasonably COVID relaxed, you know, for a yeah. while. You know. Yeah,
1: Darwin was like nothing has changed. Mm. It felt ridiculous that the theatre was half full. Because mm. if, if you don't know, they what they do now is the theatres are half full. Often they call it checkerboard seating. They put spaces in. So you have 500 people spread out throughout a 1,000-seat venue In Darwin, you know, you're shaking hands with everyone down the street. There's no social distancing. No one cares. They're doing it because they have to. I don't know, it's the insurance or it's the law. Um, It's probably the first... The audience in that auditorium, it's probably the first time they've had to think about social distancing in six months. So to them, it was all just a bit of a lark. Um, Having said that, in Brunswick Heads, it's very similar to it at the the picture house. There's more space. They're, They're obeying all the laws. But the, the concern for catching a, a, a COVID from someone next to him, it just does not exist. Um, it'll be interesting as I move further south. I think that the Opera House shows will be interesting. I'm not sure if masks are mandatory, but I think they might recommend the wearing of masks. That's going to be something difficult to get around. But again, like I said, I think the gigs just have to start again. And if I have to... Battle my way through a whole lot of muffled laughs, in you know, a checkerboard seating at the opera house. I'll just, I'll just do that because I'd rather do that than not do the show.
0: All I would say is that I, I I'm catching a weekly plane from Ballina to Sydney to do Gruen, mm. and they give out free masks, you know, as you get on the plane. Yeah. And about ten or fifteen percent of the people on those planes will wear those masks. Yes. And so. If people don't have to compulsory wear them on the tiny little
1: plane, yeah. <laughs> they should not have to
0: wear them at the opera house in checkered seating. Well,
1: when I flew to Darwin, on the way up, there were four people wearing masks and that was my family. Mm. And then on the way back, there was nobody. <laughs> and we were part of that. So that I noticed that even in that journey, that was Brisbane to Darwin return. And then people get angry about it. People are like, oh, you know, yeah. we shouldn't be complacent. But I feel complacency is part of the recovery. Mm-hmm. To have the luxury of feeling complacent is a beautiful thing. It'd be worse if we're all still tiptoeing around going, oh, my God, I might get it. Because I know that, you know, in Victoria and Melbourne, I think, you know, I'm sure sentiments are different. But, you know, if if, if you're still feeling that fear, um, maybe feel good about the fact that there is a time you will feel complacent. And complacency means that you're getting over it.
0: Uh, and hopefully complacency only comes with, you know, good reason to become complacent. Yeah. Right, that's what the general experience has been in a place like Darwin. The reason they feel complacent about it is that you're much more likely to be eaten by a fucking crocodile than you were to die of yeah. COVID in Darwin over yeah. the last six months. Well, right?
1: I'm not. I'm not saying this for medical staff in a major hospital. No, that's like, not good. <laughs> <laughs> I'm not talking about a doctor. No. In an emergency ward in the centre of Melbourne, where there's three active cases left, and he's walking around with no face masks yeah. going "It's all over, guys."
0: <laughs> I heard a
1: podcast with Tom Gleeson. Yeah, he said, "Relax." <laughs> Come over here, give me a smooch, you unwell person. Yeah, no, I mean, there's in- some levels
0: of you know hygiene and things like that that I would love us to keep. I have noticed in the male bathroom, hand-washing times have gone back to pre-COVID hand-washing mm-hmm. times. And I was like, I reckon we just could have kept the 20 seconds wash your hands. Yeah. Can we just go forward with that
1: <laughs> one? No, I know. I think, yeah, I reckon, I mean, yeah, I think hand-washing and being able to trace people are the two real big ones. And if we can keep doing that, hopefully we'll be fine from now on. Uh,
0: this idea that you, you know, understand, understood a bit of what comedy is in your life, being a comedian is in your life. Uh, but you said up until that point, you, you know, th- in a theoretical sense, at least you were kind of like, Here's, it's something that I do. It's not everything that I am. Yeah. Um, where, How did you come to comedy? Like, like you said, you knew the Chaser guys, you were in a mm. band. Like, why was it that comedy came out of the middle of that?
1: It. There are a lot of things building up. But I was in a band, and I was, uh, my band was quite like it was an art band, basically an art house type band. So it was like we were, yeah, I, I suppose Sonic Youth would be the most um, coarse kind of comparison. Like we we're quite dissonant. We had strange time signatures. I was rewiring my guitar using different strings because I thought I was Thurston Moore, and you know we like Pink Floyd and we. Anyway, the point was, it was a, it wasn't when we played at pubs, I felt like it required some explanation. Mm. So often I'd explain the songs to the crowd and I'd get laughs while explaining them. So I'd be like, this song's in five, four, Uh, you can try dancing to it, but it's impossible. (laughs) Good luck. And then start the song and you'd get a few laughs from the old piss heads at the Sandringham in Newtown. (laughs) So there was a bit of that. And um, so I had this sense that I was funny or that I had an ability with an audience And so I did a competition at Sydney university and that's where I just did stand up for five. And I, I didn't, I think I got through the heat and Adam Spencer was hosting and Chaz was on and Craig Rewcastle and Andrew Hanson was there. And, um, a lot of other, uh, yeah, Sydney uni mates were on. And it, it it was just when I did five minutes of stand up, it was like a lightning bolt went off. I just thought, I know, I didn't think I knew exactly what I was doing, but I'd found it. Mm -hmm. And, To the dismay, I guess, of my friends who I was in bands with over the years, I discovered what I was looking for all that time when I was in bands. Mm -hmm. That is what I was good at. So I suddenly felt like, oh, this is what it would feel like if I was good at playing guitar, if I was actually talented. Like it just felt like a. it was just... And after that very first spot, I was a comedian. I just knew straight away. It was definite. That was what I was going to do from then on. It was like straight away.
0: It's interesting to me because I don't know if you ever... You're not a big one for necessarily saying that out loud though, right? Is that Am I right mm. in saying that or is that a? Uh, I kind of feel like you carry yourself not like somebody who knew from the very first gig you did that you were going to be a comedian.
1: Oh, right. Yeah, well, when I first started, because you're around so many chances, I knew inside that I was a comedian. Uh-huh. I just knew it, but I didn't know how far that would go. And I felt like I had inside knowledge that other people didn't have part of that is like being 19 Mm -hmm. and you know just being foolish um but I just kept having good experiences like I would I would like I remembered really early on I just I did a killer spot and after me Libby Gord died on stage because I just blown it the hinges off the joint just little things where I could measure up to other people that were quite good or I could rattle them and um so I just felt like I had some kind of skill. And plus at that time I was winning competitions. You know, I'd, I'd do well in, um, I'd win prize money at the Unicomp and, and I was getting paid gigs. I mean, within f- three months of starting, I got, we know now that it means nothing, but within three months of starting, I got flown to the Gold Coast to cover Schoolies Week for the Comedy Channel. I'm on TV after a couple of months being paid to fly there. And I thought, well, Clearly, I must know something. <laughs> right. In retrospect, that is not an accolade. <laughs> but at the time, it was enough for make me. To, it was still me, just sort of just moving forward in some way. So well, and it's why those things are actually still important. Like as yes, silly as it steps. sounds,
0: but also the fact that somebody went, let's do a thing where they could just as easily the Comedy Channel not sent. Yeah. a young comedian to Gold coast for schoolies, nah. you know? Yeah. Like you could make the argument in a meeting that the budget could be spent better somewhere else, yeah. but somebody thought, no, this is important, yeah. right? A, for the thing we're making, but also that these smaller opportunities give people stepping stones in their career to go on to bigger opportunities. Yeah,
1: and also just, yeah, real basic stuff. I'm at Sydney Uni doing science, mm. just... And uh, telling my mates, yeah, I'm being flown to the Gold Coast by this new thing called Foxtel. Mm. Sounds great. (laughs) Sounds like a great company with a good ethos. And they're going to fly me up to the Gold Coast. (laughs) Doesn't sound subsidised. They're going to fly me up and and I get to stay in the Gold Coast for a couple of days and come back. I miss schoolies. I get to finally go. I didn't even know what a toolie was back then. (laughs) This is pre-toolie. I was just a 20-year-old uni student. Go, wow, I'm a Schoolies. Now I see what all the fuss was about.
0: <laughs> so, okay. So you start doing stand up, and when did you start doing Triple J Radio with like the Breakfast Show?
1: Uh, probably not long after you. So when you st- when did you start again? 2000, 2000, yeah. Maybe? Around that time, we we got Subby and I got asked to do mid-dawn shifts. It was around that time, and we kind of couldn't believe it. We were kind. I can't. I actually can't even remember how we ended up in there. There was. I, I know we knew you, but we also knew Adam Spencer back mm-hmm. from uni days. Sarah Kendall was doing mid-dawn shifts as well. Another mm-hmm. friend of ours who who you know who did the great TV show on ABC called Frayed. Um, So there were, I had other people who were in the building and then, and and yeah, Caroline Tran one day said, this is where the CD goes and this is how you turn the mics on. Good luck, boys. And that was it. And we're like, fucking hell. Started doing mid-dawn shifts. And then we did that for a while and we were just being slowly on this weird little conveyor belt. And then we got asked to, we started filling in for Roy and HG. That was a big break. And people were starting to quote me to me in the street. and, And we started all these weird segments that people seemed to like. And we thought we we're on a trajectory to drive, and then Charlie Pickering did drive, and we didn't. And that was that.
0: What? How did you and Subby start working together? Because like, for a while you were much more identified, even though you were both obviously... Mm. You know, do things separately, you know, because I because of the radio and yeah. places like that where you're working together, often, like, you know, people like Merrick and Rosso, like, there was that real sort of association between the two of you. Yeah. Like, had you on purpose gone, we're going to, like, you know, try to sell ourselves as a double act or had it just been, hey, yeah. we're, like, working together and...
1: It was, I was going to say it's quite a cynical move. It kind of was, but we obviously, like, we comedically were best friends. Like, we were always each other's favourite act on the bill. Um, We felt like we both just had, we just both had a lateral point of view. We just felt a bit different to everyone else who was doing open mic in Sydney at the time. Just a little bit different. And... What happened was Simon Morgan, who used to own the Harold Park Hotel, which is, I'd call it, our home base, he just essentially said, radio's full of duos. You two should just get together and do something. So next Monday, I just want you two to stand on stage and just see how long you can go for. And so we met up during the week and we just thought, oh, what do we do? We, and what we did was we kind of hived off our stand-up routines. We we both had bits and pieces and we, we melded our stand-up routines together and used them as premises for kicking off points for... To, to, to do rolling punchlines as opposed to just doing them ourselves. And we didn't have a time limit and we got on stage with two mics and we got really good, consistent laughs for like 35 minutes and it was the longest either of us had ever been on stage before. So we thought, there's something in this, we reckon. So then from then on, we just started to do festival shows together and then Subby had a child and he couldn't get to Melbourne and so the first comedy festival show I did was our show without him in it. So he had to... He was not in it. So he still remained in some of the video sketches I had. Otherwise, it was just me doing solo. So that was kind of an accident. And then from then on, I just did it on my own because it was easier. And he, he was like, well, you know, I've got kids now. I'm not going to Melbourne. <laughs> so that.
0: th- that's interesting though. Like, I mean, it feels... I mean, it's it's quite funny that there was a real transition because I was going to ask that idea of like what it was like to go from working in a double act to like working solo because there's obviously they're
1: all happening at the same time, but they
0: were all happening at the same time. I was doing
1: everything I could do, yeah, and
0: then even when you transitioned. <laughs> <laughs> you were really doing like a double act show Without the other I which know the best way to yeah. like Even if you were in a double act yeah. The best way to break up from a double act yeah. Like the show's kind of the gap in between I'll yeah. in some of the sketches yeah. We'll just ease out of each other It'll yeah. be fine
1: Yeah, well it was called The show was called Pirate Copy Because I was alluding to the fact That it was an imitation of what the show should have been right. Which is a joke that nobody understood And didn't matter <laughs> So then that was that show. And so, but then, you know, like things could have gone in very different directions. So we, uh, Subby and I then, we got asked to work at Triple M mm-hmm. and I thought I could use that as a bargaining chip against Triple J. I went straight back to Triple J and said, just quietly, Triple M's come knocking and they've said that they've offered us a spot. So what are you going to do with us? And they went, you can leave. And we went, I was expecting a counter offer, but yeah, I guess we're going to Triple M, aren't we? <laughs> And I was annoyed because I was being paid money On a commercial radio station I didn't understand that that's a good thing Anyway, so I went there And and again, this is so funny looking back on it Because I know how media works now Whereas back then I still thought that what happened was They gave me money because I deserved it I didn't understand that I needed to do anything in (laughs) exchange So Triple M then offered us Adelaide breakfast Uh And Subby and I went no, <laughs> we're not doing that. And we didn't realize, oh, you need us to do that. You want us to do that. And then after we do that for you, then you, then we're in, we're then, in the
0: system. Yeah. then Yeah. It's, you've, you've got to go and fill this thing for yeah. us, which is where we try out people yeah. for the, we have got a process. Yeah. we can't just put you into the main show. No, we have out of town tryouts.
1: Yeah, and it's we said we said we don't want to live in Adelaide. Yeah. What else have you got? Do you have Melbourne breakfast <laughs> or Sydney <laughs> no, breakfast? We don't. No. Okay. All right. Well, <laughs> we'll, wait. we'll that, wait till that's available.
0: <laughs> the people doing that are the people who just left Adelaide. That's why there's a hole in Adelaide.
1: <sighs> yeah. Well, we're not going to do that. We will be right here, ready in Sydney anyway. So we so that kind of so we got fired and then um, and so weirdly enough looking back on it me doing solo shows is kind of an accident Mm. the only reason i kept doing them was because they worked so the things i liked about solo shows was you they you didn't need props and you didn't need sound cues and you didn't need so in small venues so long as you ironed your shirt it was easy it was easy not to look shit (laughs) you know you could so long as you were being funny and interesting for an hour you could do that and whereas coming at comedy from outside the idea of someone talking for an hour I it just seemed boring to me so I only did it cuz it worked and I just kept doing it cuz it was easier than being in a duo and plus uh my friend sabi was he just he wanted to stay in sydney
0: was there a moment when it went from uh you know this is I'm doing this because I'm good at this I'm doing this because it works to A different level of understanding why you're doing it or that you were doing it for a a different level
1: than that? Yeah. I reckon looking back on it, it sounds horrible to say, I reckon I spent eight years doing it because it worked. And then only after a really long time, I started to think, oh, no, no, I'm really, really good at it. I'm a lot better at it than I probably realised. Like I was, for a long time, I was just stringing together stand-up routines and just, because I felt like, I always felt like my festival shows, my one-hour solo shows, weren't as funny as my club spots. I'd headline a club and kill, and I couldn't quite get that energy in the one-hour show. Once I flipped over into being able to make the festival show the same thrill for the audience, that's when it all came together. But that took ages.
0: It's, but it's hard to click over in your brain to that yeah. point where, like, you need an overwhelming amount of evidence. Yes, Like, I think still, I think actually part of what I was talking to you before about this idea of me wanting to have a break is that what I've realized is that part of me being on that yearly cycle of doing a show was putting a cap on my expectations of what it is that I could achieve. Right. Like, you know, because there's an artificial cap of like, you can only do a show up to a point and then you have to turn it over and you know be working on this new show yeah. so you never really have to test how good something could possibly be if you dedicated the right amount of time like there's never been a show of mine that didn't get better oh. what if it had started better like mm. you know what how much better could it get if you took the time to have as, as good as it ends by the time you start if oh that makes well, sense,
1: right? I, when I recorded my special for Amazon at the end of last year, that was the last time I ever performed that show that I'd done for a year. And during that recording, I came up with a better ending for a routine that I'd done for a year, Right, which is really embarrassing. I should have thought of it so much earlier, but that happens, doesn't it? Yeah, but that's yeah. part
0: of the process. I'd be interested to see, you know, with you, this show, you've had a really you know, you'll end up probably doing this show in so many different ways. Yes. Like a show that you might have gone, hey, I'll do three or four months of touring this show Mm. and then the show will be done and put away for a while. Like you've actually, you've had breaks, you've come Mm. back, you've done it in different circumstances. Like I imagine the show at the end of you doing this show is just going to be an incre like a a more complex and Mm. interesting and hardened in all sorts of conditions in a way that, You know, previous shows probably haven't
1: No, that's right But also that's I I always see a show as being like I don't know It's like a collection of stories That you can make the audience uh, get into Depending Hmm. on the circumstances you're in I'm quite I can be quite cheap like that I can really (laughs) I I can make a story seem like it came out of nowhere And it really did not It was only going to end one way (laughs) That's the whole gig That's the whole gig but yeah, quite often, yeah, sometimes. <laughs> something, I said something that I can't remember. No, I know, I, I've got a routine. I, actually, okay, this is a confession for the live show. It doesn't ruin it if you haven't seen it, but in the whole show that I, I, I am touring at the moment, the one story that probably sticks out the most like dog balls is, um, is uh, I've got a story about going to Singapore. That's it. Obviously, I, haven't been, I can't go. So I was in Singapore the other day. All right, need a different intro. So I came up with, where was the last place you went overseas? <laughs> and I said, I went to Singapore. If I knew that was the last place I'd ever go overseas ever, I would have chosen better and then tell the same story. Right. <laughs> but, it's, <laughs> but, but it's funny how but. instantly it's plugged into the show. And yeah. I feel like I, I almost feel ashamed at how <laughs> smooth that shoehorn went into the shoe.
0: Well, there's a moment where you're just like, oh man, I am actually manipulating people. I know that's yeah, the whole yeah. gig. I know, but I
1: know. That one, I feel a bit dirty yeah, about yeah, yeah, I could do- drop it, but it's too funny to drop. No, you do it funny all the bit. time. You're yeah. just aware of it in this moment. Yeah, but I also, over the years, like when you've been going for so long, you dis- you have rules and then you discard them. Well, I was
0: going to say, do you yeah. have any current rules or can you give me an example of a rule you thought was true but you've now discarded?
1: Well, So a rule I had that's really, really simple is just the idea of things being relatable. Can the audience understand what you're talking about essentially? So, you know, and that's why people talk about having kids or relationships or drinking too much or whatever things that people can easily sort of, Go, oh, that reminds me of me. That's an obvious one. But when I went to uh, entertain the troops in Iraq, I realised I broke all those rules and I loved it. I was talking about a country people had never been to, observing things that they were never going to see. Uh, they couldn't relate to any of it because they won't go and fight a war, but it was still very funny. And so I was like, oh, oh no, no, no. If you, if you actually <laughs> dedicate yourself to being a good storyteller and you are talking about something interesting, you're fine. And so ever since then I always try to have something in a show that I feel you can't get over the line a couple of years I had a routine about getting solar panels on my house it just sounded like a terrible topic for (laughs) stand-up so I just wanted to make it work because I loved them and I was obsessed with them yeah and there's just and there was something about them that was annoying me and I thought just the idea of telling the audience i'm going to tell you about solar panels but it's okay (laughs) and then it just became this bizarre i just loved having on my set list solar panels i got solar panels on it just sounds like a shit topic i don't think that you get it over the line i don't
0: think that i ever fully got there but i Mm. had a a bit in one of my shows a couple of years ago that i had tried to get off the ground Mm. a few years before that and i I was much more successful the second time around Mm. but I may still give it a third time around yeah. <laughs> at some stage because I don't feel like I've fully got where I wanted to get with it. But uh. I've always been obsessed with doing... So sometimes when I am out in public, I don't know why this is, mm. but I just inherently feel like I have like the capacity to control birds with my mind, but I just <laughs> haven't unlocked how to do it yet. And so sometimes when I'm by myself and there are birds around, I will just try to control the birds. I'll try different things and run through because just in my head, I have this like feeling Mm. that if I just unlock the right thing, and then I'll be like, I need, like you said, does it work one in in a hundred times?
1: (laughs) Is that, is that what your hit rate right
0: is? <laughs> it, I think it works more than that, to Oh, okay. be okay. I mean, I would suspect that <laughs> correlation doesn't, you know, come from the fact that it's just happening. Uh, um, yeah. I, I, I like the idea of something that is not inherently, mm. you know, relatable. I don't think that there's going to be anybody else in the audience when I'm doing that routine that I'm relying on the idea that, there'll also be other people who think that they can control birds and, <laughs> and try to control birds. Yeah. But that maybe it can be funny mm. at some stage. Yeah. Uh, I um, am aware of the fact that you have a gig tonight and I don't want to take all of your time, oh, but yeah. I have some standard questions that yes. I ask. So I would like to ask some of
1: those. Uh, what do you think happens when we die? Nothing, unfortunately, mm. which is a real shame because it's like... You think, oh, man, it would be so much better if something did happen. But I'm pretty sure that nothing happens. But the way I kind of turn that into a positive is, you know, just to make the most of what you got. I mean, I, the thing I worry about at the moment is my kids, they haven't worked that out yet, mm. that nothing happens. But they will eventually, and I'm sort of skirting around. It's a bit bad. So I've, I've cause I was brought up Catholic, mm. I have brought up my children with no religion, and I'm quite committed to no religion, but I'm completely hypocritical. The tooth fairy is true. There are fairies in our house. Santa's real, brings presents. They're into crystals. You know why? They work. <laughs> Does God exist, Dad? Oh, no, I don't think so. <laughs> you know, some people think God exists. Some people don't. You know, it depends on what religion you are. You know, I'm really sort of, I try to lay the groundwork for doubt there. But with all the other stuff, I'm oh, yeah, the f- tooth fairy will bring you money. Don't worry about it. But
0: I think, uh, on list of priorities, right, yeah. isn't there a sense that, there's not too many people who are still traumatized about the fact that they found out about Santa or the truth, I guess fairy, so, yeah. right? Whereas religion yeah. can have disastrous lifelong consequences on somebody losing their idea of their faith or, you know, yeah. whereas like there isn't that same connection to you can say, say as a parent, I was told all these lies also. And I'm fine. There's not yeah. a moment that I wake <laughs> up and just resent but well, you know what I hate yeah. my parents, the whole tooth fairy sham. Yeah. No, it's fine. Yeah. We all get over the tooth fairy.
1: Yeah. But yeah, so what happens at the end? Nothing. I mean the 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 thing I comfort myself with too is I just hope that it's like I, I, I imagine a calmness descends. And I think your body creates that for you yeah. with endorphins or whatever it is. So I would like to think that it's a very pleasant experience exiting this world. Do you have a way that you would like to die? Oh, hopefully surrounded by family. Hopefully I'm really old. I mean, part of me would like the idea that it just happens in the middle of the night. Mm. I'm under the impression that my grandfather, who I was named after, uh, I think he might have died while rooting, I think. And he was 80. Mm. And he had a stroke, I think. Um, that'd be pretty good. <laughs> just <laughs> be in the throes of also to be 80 and just ah, ah. Oh.
0: I think that would just be one great set. Like, I mean, yeah. re- even if you'd been off the radar for years, yeah, like former Gold Logie winner, ah, oh, you know, has a stroke, be the best. <laughs> like, on Richard the Pry's
1: dad, I think, died when he was having sex and he was quite happy about <laughs> that. But I mean, it does, but also the idea, like, you know, there's. It's quite common that after a male orgasms, you you be you, you, it's a sedative effect. It makes you want to have a sleep. Imagine dying yeah. with that in the mix. Be <laughs> real easy little drift, wouldn't it?
0: <laughs> um, so we spoke a little about the idea of legacy earlier. So I yeah. do, I normally ask if you know people want to be remembered. We've touched on that a little bit. Have you changed your mind at all about that? You know, what is important to you about how you're remembered? Like is your work? more important or how you are as a person or how you are with your family like what are the priorities
1: when it comes to you know you living on um it's it sort of sounds funny because obviously I mocked the gold logie so mercilessly but I also enjoyed winning it yeah. and I did say that as well that gets lost a bit in the mix I like being part of history I like the fact that I'm the only one since Bert Newton to do the opening and win the gold logie like that's cool you it know I cool. like that stuff and I like the fact that I won the same thing as Graham Kennedy. I know a lot of people think, I oh, know, but you devalued it, but you're different. You're not as good as Daryl Summers or whatever. doesn't matter. I've also won it. And I did- Also,
0: and I, you're too gracious to ever say this, but the idea that they thing has not been manipulated- Re- relentlessly behind the scenes oh. for the history of the award. Like, <laughs> you just did it out in the open. Yeah. But, like, the idea, yeah. that, like, and I won't name names or anything, yeah. but the legitimacy of, like, a publicity department sitting around with TV, week magazines, yeah. is somehow, you have devalued the London proud history. I know.
1: It is quite, it, it's never-endingly amusing yeah. to me that I manipulated the award by asking people to vote for me, which they did, mm. because my program was the most popular popularity of the other nominees. I mean, it's it's kind of what the award's supposed yeah. to be. And I, by, I, I, by, manip- I manipulated by, the award back into yeah. being what it should be.
0: No, <laughs> you played by the literal rules of the competition <laughs> they'd set up.
1: That's it. Like I used their the, website.
0: The reason <laughs> they have a thing where you vote for the person yeah. is that they hope that those people marshal their audiences or are appealing enough that people want to vote for them so that in the past people would buy TV Weeks and now that they will, you know, visit the sites. And that's the whole point of it.
1: Yeah. And you can only verify single votes with your mobile number. There is no multiple voting. <laughs> and using that stringent system, I won. What? It's the most legitimate win there's ever been when you really focus on it. <laughs> but
0: particularly because you told everybody what you were doing. Yeah, well, it I didn't. Wasn't yeah. any, there wasn't any secrets behind no. the scenes. You were like, here I'm going to do this. <laughs> I'm going to do this. And then you did it.
1: <laughs> Where did that come from? This shock win that he said he was going to do for ages. So, getting back to the idea of legacy, I did used to say to my wife, I said because I would talk about the Logie my plans, and she would. There are points at which she's like, "You're going nuts. You're, you're like, you're mad." And I'm like, "No, no, 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 no. I think it's really good." And the thing I said was, I did like the idea that it was actually something that would stand the test of time, because as you know, stand up is so transient. A lot of the best things I've ever done finished as soon as I walked off stage. And they didn't, were not never recorded. They were just live and they just exist in the minds of the people that saw it. And I love that. I love that as well. But it was just, there's just something really nice about having just that thing that everyone will remember that you did. And so... I know that I'll probably be forever remembered as being the dude that won the Gold Logie that time in that crazy way and gave that ludicrous speech. And I'm really proud of it. And I'm I'm happy about it to be like that. Yeah,
0: it's an okay first line of the bio. Yeah, exactly. Um, When your friends speak about you when you're gone or behind your back now, what Mm. would you hope they say? Not what do they say, Mm. but what what would you hope they say? I don't
1: know. Because I don't... It's a bit of a tricky one because I genuinely don't really care what people think yeah so i don't really think about it but you much. must care how what some people think shortly yeah i mean you know every now and then people reveal their opinions about me in the media and i get to read it that's interesting <laughs> um and i'm like oh didn't realize they weren't a fan but there you go <laughs> but i like to think that people will realize that and as time wears on, looking back at what I did with my speech and the rest of it was that I have a relentless devotion to comedy mm. and that it was a pure devotion. Yeah. To be honest, like, I put comedy ahead of myself in some respects because there were so many moments in which I could have thought that it meant something for me sincerely or that it was – it meant that everybody loved me or that there was – I could have – dragged it back to what those awards often are when they're at their worst. You know, this means I'm a good person or whatever. But I thought, no, I'm going to mercilessly take the piss every single step of the way, even after I win. And so, I don't know. I like the idea that people would just think that I was always committed to being funny.
0: And seeing the joke through the whole way. Going the whole way. Yeah. Yeah. It's a complete piece of work. Yeah. (sighs) Um, So what's your greatest strength, do you think? What is it that, you know, has separated you, you know, in like, you know, the areas of success that you've had? What is it?
1: I can be very single-minded. So once I focus on something, I can just block everything out and just stick at that thing. And it's to the detriment sometimes of my family. Like my, I'll be at home sometimes staring out a window and I'll be in the middle of packing the dishwasher and I'll be holding a bowl in my hand and I won't have put it in and I could have been standing there for 10 minutes. And my wife will say, you were thinking about a comedy bit, weren't you? And I'll be like, Yeah. <laughs> 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 then I'll put the bowl in the dishwasher and finish packing it and get on with the rest of my day. So when I, I – yeah, it, it works for what I do. But, yeah, so when I become obsessed by something, I think about it all day, every day, and um, and then I pursue it the whole way. And it's a single-minded focus. But the, and, but the good thing is I don't think about other people. I don't worry about the grass is green. Oh, but what are they doing? I wish I had what they have. I don't really suffer from jealousy. I just – Aim for that thing, so that can be a strength.
0: So I think I can ask you this question then, because because of that single-mindedness, is there things that you still would like to achieve? Like you know, is there things that you haven't got to do that you're like, oh, because you strike me as the sort of person that mm. you think, well, if there, like you said, why not ask? Why not ask if you can open the bowling? Yeah, is there a still another open the bowling
1: up your sleeve? Well, I mean, I've always said this and it is true. I only ever thought I'd headline at the comedy store. That's as far as I was aiming when I started. So once I started headlining, I thought I was pretty, I thought I was home and hosed. I got my 300 bucks or whatever it was. And I thought this is the best thing ever. I was a year or two out of uni, happy days. I never thought I'd get a go at TV. I thought that was something that Owen did and Daryl Summers and, you know, Mm -hmm. As you remember back then, there was no good news. now we're Jamoan and Daryl Summers. (laughs) Now I'm Daryl Summers and you're Jamoan. I play the drums. And I've got a gold loggy. It's not not ironic. I am Daryl Summers. (laughs) But um, so... So all of these things feel extra. I'd, I'd, I'd given up on hosting a TV show. I thought I just was going to be a second banana or someone on a panel show for the rest of my days, and I, and I was happy with that. And then Hard Quiz turned up, and I got to rediscover, oh, I can do this thing I thought I could do a long time ago, but it, and it finally worked for me. Getting the gold leggy was fantastic just because it's it's sort of like – it's a, it's a success that people can't deny, yeah. like it happened, like it's a – you know, it's like it's, it, it definitely occurred. You can't say, oh, he's some fly-by-night and that hard quiz is overrated. No, it's really popular and people like it. Sorry, you mm-hmm. can't argue with that. So there's that. Opening the Logies for me was a big deal. I mean, to be standing on that stage and looking down at all of the TV people losing their minds and laughing at all the stuff you're saying is just a dream come true, you know. So that's a big tick. So I've kind of... I've. Gone. I've overshot the mark by a big way, but if I really think about it, I have always had in the back of my head that I'd love to have a funny role in a Hollywood film, like oh, yeah. just a like you know how do you remember in the eighties how stand-up comedians would often turn up? They'd be the funny person, maybe in a in another film, like yeah. like uh, you know like Sam Kinison. He was the he was the history teacher in a Rodney Dangerfield film, and he'd and he'd 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 have t- one scene where he's in class and he loses his mind, and that's a funny. I'd love that. If 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 I got called to do a funny little role in the next Thor film and it was just and I got to dress up and be on a big set and oh, that would be the best. I mean that's a pretty good. Yeah. That
0: specific have you thought about that specific film in relation to this before or did that just come out of your mouth there?
1: It just came out of my mouth but I also it's weird. I am in I am in the situation... This is what I love about what we do. It is possible right. that I I could after this there would be an email saying by the way it turns out um, the directors saw you on blah blah and thinks you'd be perfect for this role. Like right. it does happen. Like I did a scene with um, in Jack Irish with uh, uh, Guy Pierce and that was, that was kind of scratching that itch. But I remember on the way to the... I was driving there, I was like, what am I doing? <laughs> Guy Pierce knows how to act and I don't. I mean, I've do, I was in Skid House, but that was 20 years ago. What am I doing? And it's, it's really quite funny, actually, because I had a, the first scene I did with Guy Pierce, while I was driving to set, I'm like, so... Like, he was in Memento. What yeah. the fuck am I thinking? Like, he's been in big, proper yeah. Hollywood films. It's yeah. all he does and he's really good at it. Yeah. And I'm just going to drive in from Romsey and just have a crack. Like imagine if Guy Pierce just turned up at the comedy store and thought, I'll headline tonight. i would be like, you're a fucking idiot, Guy Pierce. Get out of this comedy room. Anyway, so I turn up and I'm behind the door. I had he knocked on the front door and I had to open the door and talk to him. Like and 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 we have a we had a scene together where, and I'd learned all the lines and I was I didn't want to forget my lines. I didn't want to be that guy. And and He knocks on the door and I open the door and they're shooting me first in close-up. So I open the door and I go to talk to him and I said a raft of noises that weren't any words. I said, (laughs) I'm so fucking sorry. And I slammed the door in his face. (laughs) And he started laughing. And then I'm back behind the door and I'm like, my heart's racing at a million miles an hour. And I was like, well, I think I'm right. I don't think I can act. That's not how you act. You've got to actually say the words. (laughs) And I'm behind the door and the the, the AD or the assistant mm-hmm. director who's next to me who had to tap my shoulder to let me know that that's when the director wanted you to open the door is looking at me like, we're going to... And I'm looking at them like, I don't want to let you down. I don't want to... We don't want to be here all day. I'm going to get it right this time. And then I, and then I did the scene once, got it right. And I was like, oh, thank oh. God.
0: <laughs> it's funny though because so much of what you do feels... Like you're impenetrable, right? Yes. Even though that's oh, know, not fr- the case. Oh, quite frightened. But yeah. So, is that a rare occurrence that you're put in a situation where you like feel so overwhelmed? Oh,
1: in the last couple of years, the most out of depth I've been is doing that scene. Yeah. And it was Skit House was a great training ground for being on location right. and shooting in the style and the way that dramas are done because Skit House was shot like a drama. But, yeah, when you open a door and you're looking at a movie star's face, that's a moment where you think one of us should be here and the other one shouldn't. <laughs> if you're, like, walking out in the middle and, like, Don Bradman's at the other end and you're- <laughs> and he goes, we'll just run a single, and you're like, no! Stay there and hit boundaries and get a single at the end of the over and I'll be up the other end watching you. <laughs> I don't want to run out Don Bradman. <laughs> no, I almost ran out Don Bradman. Um- if when you're
0: passing on wisdom to your kids um do you have a like did you have a set philosophy of how you do that you talked about religion obviously mm. you clearly made a choice around what you would tell your kids around that mm. are, are you a person who's like i have a set of principles as a parent that i follow or is it has it it been an instinctual thing
1: yeah, it's very instinctual. I, I just sort of go with what feels good, which is probably will lead to all its own problems. Probably <laughs> yeah. just as many problems as I've got. I guess it seems to be a pattern mm. with humanity, doesn't it? Right. Um, <laughs> yes. Uh, but well, yeah, wh-
0: whatever approach you take, things yeah. are going to go wrong.
1: Yeah, but I lean heavily on things that I think were that worked out well for me. Yeah. But I have to try to f- remember that my kids are different people. But it's tricky. I've got a nine-year-old daughter and a five-year-old boy and they are like, my boy is full of bravado. And so I just do nothing to crush it. It might make him obstinate and it might make him a pain in the ass. But again, getting back to that, wanting to open the bowling, I don't know. If you had a choice between being shy or confident, I think you'd choose confident, wouldn't you? I think the feeling of missing out is more painful than the feeling of overshooting the mark and failing. That's what I reckon. So I've have kind of i do encourage them to be bold definitely and to not waste their time feeling bad about things or what other people think you know
0: all right two more questions and then we're done um if you could take a skill you don't have to learn how to do this skill you Mm -hmm. don't need your ten thousand hours or anything like that but if you could take a skill and just be good at something immediately Yep. What, what would you love to just be brilliant at?
1: Oh, that's easy because I'm in Byron Bay surfing. Mm. We had a surfing lesson, the whole family. My two kids stood up straight away and they could stand up straight away. And they, I think they fell off two or three times and they caught about 20 waves each standing up. I caught one wave for a very short period of time and my wife was a lot better than me. So I'd like to be just good at surfing straight away because I can tell from what I've done I'm not going to be able to do the time to be good at this. I have to find something else to do.
0: But in the one time you got up, was there enough appeal in that moment that you think it'd be good to be able to do this well all the time? Uh, do you think that if you were really good at surfing, you'd get bored of surfing or would you just love surfing all the time?
1: Well, I, I have to, I've, I've got a paddle board and I have been surfing on that and it's a lot easier. I know the surfers don't respect that, but it's like, cause it's a big long board and you just stand there, you paddle in. It's a lazy way of surfing, which I like. But I must admit, it's it hasn't. I thought stand up's pretty hard to top. That's that's that problem because everyone talks about surfing like it's the best thing in the world. You catch a wave and you're just out there, and it's like, yeah. But I have like hundreds of people adoring me and paying me. Imagine your wave is people. (laughs) Yeah, and and it gives you you money riding
0: their wave, and every time, yeah, they give you like a substantial. All the fish give you money. Imagine an ocean, but the waves yeah. are made of mud yeah. and
1: all the fish say, thank you so much yeah. for coming on this wave <laughs> It'd be heaps better It would be Rather than just out there with all those ungrateful fish
0: yeah, And it's not as hard on your <laughs> hips yeah. so.
1: But I mean, I like the idea of being good at it Because it, it seems to be something that everyone really likes But yeah, I'm, I, uh, yeah But also ride a motorbike, that's, I don't know That's as much of a thrill, I think and Uh, and that's something I've done since I was six which is probably how my kids will feel about surfing
0: Uh, all right so uh, final question Uh, I have a time machine I don't have a time machine but if I had a time machine I would be offering everybody one round trip to any time in the future or the past Mm. in your own life or just in history to observe or change I'm very loose on what you can use it for all I need is the time machine back at the end of the journey but where would you like to go?
1: Uh, I would go to the mid seventies oh, yeah. and probably I say London or New York, but probably New York and just to be in the middle of New York with Saturday Night Live starting, mm. uh, Monty Python being in the cinemas, you know, Eric Idle and, and, and Michael Palin guest hosting Saturday Night Live, Rolling Stones dropping in and being the guest band, Led Zeppelin being on at Madison Square Garden. This that that time is just a magic time for me. I'm obsessed with it. Just the idea of being it there and watching Woody Allen films and that whole world. I love
0: uh, your tour. Well, yeah, mini tour at the moment, but like more dates will be added when there are places to do. dates, yeah. basically. So where do people find? Well, where? So you're at Brunswick Heads, just this week though. That's right. right
1: yeah, and uh, Brisbane sold out. Toowoomba isn't. Okay. Uh, so you can still get tickets at Toowoomba. Grafton, Canberra, Sydney and Newcastle. Okay. So, yeah.
0: yeah. So, there's still a fair amount of yeah, dates Yeah, there's a go. few dates to go, yeah. And, I mean, we don't even know if there's going to be festivals next year, but would you think that you will do something yeah, next my, year?
1: Yeah, my plan now is to – I'll do Melbourne Comedy Festival because yeah. it's Melbourne is the place I cancelled and haven't made up those dates for. So – Essentially, this tour I'm doing, the Lighten Up tour, I've just, I've called, I just had a big pause for seven months, and now I'm going to let it roll into next year. So
0: there's probably uh, a tram advertising the show still rolling around there. Melbourne. The so. dates might even
1: line up. Yeah. <laughs> I don't think we, we didn't put 2020 on it.
0: <laughs> hey man, thanks for doing this. I really appreciate
1: it. Thank you.